Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Uh, I know a lot of you are probably shocked to hear us back on the air. We have been gone for quite a while. Uh, Season three has been a a bit of a mess, frankly. We were here, and then we were gone, and then we were here, and then we were gone. Uh, We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but wanted to let you know that hopefully we are back. Now, I know I've said that at least twice now, and we've disappeared again, but hopefully it is for real this time. Um, So quick rundown of news in my world. Uh, Probably biggest personal news is that I am now engaged. I proposed to the young lady that I've been dating for some time back in October. Uh, Thankfully, she said yes, because if she didn't, that would have been very embarrassing. Uh, If you guys were listeners back in the uh, 2017, I think it was, time frame, uh, you might recall that we were slated to go to Disney World for our anniversary The hurricane that came through postponed that particular trip. By the time we were able to actually go, we found out Samson was dying of cancer, so the trip had kind of a a melancholy tone to it. Uh, Well, we rescheduled and said this was going to be like going to Disneyland for real this time, and I planned the proposal to happen while we were down there. So she she was surprised, which was great, because that's really the goal that I wanted, is I wanted her to not expect it. Um, so yes, so that has happened. We also, uh, have moved into a house. We got a house together. Le Chateau T-Dot is no more. I am soliciting nicknames for the new place. Uh, the good news is that, well, the house in general is good news. Um, the crazy part is that it's actually cheaper than the rent that we were paying for our respective apartments, uh, which is bizarre. It just kind of goes to show how uh, ridiculous Durham's housing market has gotten that rent was so expensive. Uh, But I have an office for the first time, and at some point, not sure when, uh, we will have it outfitted for regular recording sessions. So I will be able to do bona fide, high-quality studio recording that Mike can then slice and dice remotely. We don't have to worry about getting studio time and everything else. It should sound better than when I was just at my dining room table. Uh, We are not there yet, but that day is coming soon. Um, It's also kind of weird noticing how tiny my apartment was when you have like normal adult things. So for example, we have a dishwasher that came with the house and it is a normal regular sized dishwasher. Well, my dishwasher that I had in the apartment was designed like it's like a custom thing that was also very old. So it's like maybe a foot wide and maybe a foot and a half deep. Didn't hold hardly anything, but that's what I got used to. And now it just, it's weird because you know, it used to be I would run the dishwasher regularly because it would fill up very easily. Here, I find myself running out of dishes because I can't fill up the entirety of the dishwasher. Um, so it's just it's bizarre. So I do a lot of hand washing the dishes and such um, because the dishwasher itself is too big for our respective lifestyles, which is crazy. Um, so small stuff like that. Like, you know, I have a closet that I can now walk into. You know, it's not terribly large, but considering that I used to have like really tiny closets in the apartment. And then here in the house, you have a separate closet for coats that I had stored in my own personal closet. Uh, it's just very bizarre. Like it's cool. It's awesome. Very nice having like room for my clothes. Um, but it's interesting. So we're now in a new house. I'm open for nicknames. Let me know. Uh, office is coming along. Um, in addition, in terms of podcast notes, as I mentioned, hopefully we are going to be returning to a somewhat regular schedule. 
there's been, in addition to the life stuff, there's been lots of law-related stuff that I'm not going to go into too much detail on, but if you follow me on Twitter, you probably saw it. Uh, so if you, for some reason, are no longer subscribed to this particular podcast through uh, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, all the other stuff we're on, make sure to re-add the subscription because when you're gone for a while, the subscriptions tend to uh, to time you out, unsubscribe you, whatever the hell you want to call it. Uh, in addition to all of that, we have also started a Twitch channel. It is not criminal justice fuckery related. It is actually solely uh, video games. So back in Thanksgiving, I discovered, I don't know if y'all have heard of Jackbox, uh, there's a game called You Don't Know Jack that I used to play in high school. That's when it first came out. It was around 1998, my senior year of high school. And then went to college, and I promptly forgot about it. Well, back around Thanksgiving, one of my good friends, former associate, had a potluck Thanksgiving dinner thing that I went to. And I found out there that not only do the games still exist, but they're actually have been re-engineered to enable multiple people to play and also to have people join the audience online. And you basically have a screen as the game, and then you play the game on your phone. So it was a really cool setup uh, and discovered that I could play trivia-type games whenever I wanted. And there were people that also would play them you know, along with me. So every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, usually, I mean, there have been days where I've had to miss it because of work. Uh, at 9.30 Eastern Time, we do have Jackbox games of assorted variety. Uh, so if any of you are interested in that sort of thing, check it out. I will include a link to the Twitch channel in the show notes. Uh, as far as the personal legal stuff that has been going on, um, the Vic Mignona lawsuit is still going. I mentioned in our last episode that everything got dismissed. There was a subsequent hearing on attorney's uh, fees for the winning lawyers. Well, he appealed, and the appellate brief was filed just this past week. Uh, it is garbage, but that has prompted all of the chuds that I had blocked most of them are now back and agitating and talking about how Vic is going to win it all on appeals. So if you follow my Twitter, I apologize that the thread knot has resumed sailing. And then there's been a lot of stuff going on about neo-Confederates. The uh, UNC system ended up arranging a crooked sweetheart deal with the North Carolina Division Sons of Confederate Veterans to give them a statue called Silent Sam that had previously been on the UNC Chapel Hill campus. And then in addition to that, gave them $74,999 with which they could use to then sue the university, which they did. And then the university gave them another $2.5 million as a care and preservation trust for the statue. So roughly $2.6 million to white nationalists of pub, you know taking public education money to bankroll them. Uh, well, as part of this you know scandal, if you will, it wasn't a scandal at the time, but all this was announced the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I tweeted about it and then discovered that Saturday night of that extended Thanksgiving weekend in response to a question from a reporter at the Daily Tar Heel. Shout out to Preston Lennon. Uh, I found out that the lawsuit was filed, served, answered, and settled uh, on the same day. That led to a Twitter thread that went viral that in turn led to anonymous members of these Sons of Confederate veterans contacting me with information, including an email that the commander had sent out the day the settlement was reached, bragging that he knew that his group had no standing, but the university settled anyway because they were terrified of his attorney. 
who I also later found out, also through anonymous information, didn't actually write the lawsuit. The lawsuit was done by the university personnel and their law firm, Womble Bond Dickinson. Uh, so anyhow, long story short, when all of this started happening the first week in December, I made a strategic choice to take different aspects of the story that I had information about and give them to different reporters at different media outlets so that everyone could kind of chase their own thing, their own aspect of the story as they were trying to outscoop their competitors. And the net effect of that was that for most of the month of December, you had a bunch of very damning revelations coming out on an almost daily basis, exposing this thing for the charade that it was. You also had a lawyers group in D.C., the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, do a lot of the legal work to help get this all undone. The Daily Tar Heel filed a lawsuit against the university alleging violations of the State Open Meetings Act. Uh, And then separate from all of this, the Sons of Confederate Veterans had my Dropbox deactivated, claiming that by sharing that victory email, I had violated their copyright, which had a couple salutary effects. One, it authenticated the document, which triggered that avalanche of media coverage because previously it had just been an anonymous email. Uh, But then two, I filed a lawsuit against them in the Northern District of California under Section 512F of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Uh, because they basically violated my rights by having it taken down, uh, and that is currently pending as well. So in January, uh, no, it's February, it was earlier this month, the judge who initially approved the consent judgment uh, instead unwound it. We are now dealing with the fallout from that. We will see if anyone gets charged or ends up in silver bracelets. I am continuing to meet and talk regularly with reporters I have recently started looking into the chairman of the board, a gentleman named Randy Ramsey, who I used to work with back when he was on the North Carolina State University Board of Trustees. And it is all very interesting, very scandalous stuff that is not going to end anytime soon. Uh, But long story short, that has eaten up a lot of my time. So meeting with people, talking with folks. I've had several God, I've had several meetings with Sons of Confederate Veterans members, and we have you know a lot of these people. Because I realize there's the possibility of civil lawsuits, criminal investigations, that sort of thing. To not compromise them, I don't actually know their names. So they would create anonymous Twitter accounts. They would contact me. I would assign them numbers, and I would keep track of them by number. Uh, and I've met a few of them in person. You know, I had one guy give me the global database of every single Sons of Confederate Veterans member in the entire globe, including people you know stationed abroad in the military and so on. Uh, he and I met at a, a cookout parking lot, um, met in a Bojangles with another guy who in turn connected me with the manager of one of the political campaigns for one of the uh, legislators in the House, who's part of the Republican House leadership, who gave me information that I then tweeted that it turned out the Daily Tar Heel had already confirmed uh, and WRAL had also confirmed separately. So there's there's a whole bunch of, you know, it's just been crazy. It's been a crazy thing. Uh, So part of the reason why this podcast has been chronically behind, even though, you know, if you notice from the title, it says Happy New Year. I started the WordPress stuff for this particular episode back in January. Um, But part of the reason why it's always been behind is because a lot of this has been going on, plus moving, plus law firm stuff, trying to earn a living, that sort of thing. So God willing, it's all going to calm down and we will try and get back to some semblance of normality. 
Uh, so with all that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the criminal justice fuckery. But before we do that, if you are not already doing so, please make sure to follow the podcast on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a written comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. That also includes a wide variety of subscription options on where you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you happen to still be one of our patrons, the people financially supporting the show, thank you. Uh, you can ju- do that if you would like to at patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, for those of you who have donated in my absence, uh, know that your money has mostly gone to my grandparents to cover their medical bills. It will be resuming going to Mike the Sound Guy and our expenses for the podcast host and everything else now that we're getting back underway. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into criminal justice fuckery. And oh shit, I just noticed that my outline is actually double sided. I meant to print all this. Usually, what I do when I do the outline is everything's on one page so I can read it, toss it on the floor, we clean it up after the fact. Uh, for some reason, my printer did everything two sided. So I will try to keep this going. Uh, without any interruptions. I just have to remember to turn the page, which is not what we normally do here. Uh, So normally we start with political news. I don't really care about politics at this point. We're in this hell period where the Democrats are going through their primaries. They award their delegates proportionally, so everyone and their dog is still in the race and will likely stay in the race through Super Tuesday. And even after that, we'll likely stay in the race. And my guess is we end up with a brokered convention later this year Uh, The president is still inept and horrible, and I would hope that he would get impeached, except that he was, and he was never removed, so we just have to deal with his horribleness, uh, and we will see what happens. So rather than cover the horrible political news and the you know, stupid timeline that we happen to live in. Let's talk about some of the court news. I have a pair of qualified immunity related decisions, uh, one in my circuit here in the fourth and then over in the fifth circuit covering Mississippi, Texas, and a few other spots. Uh, And on the fourth circuit side, I feel like I should do them in reverse. Let's do the fifth circuit first. So the fifth circuit is the bad news where the court decided that the officer is going to be given qualified immunity And it's just a really fucked up decision. Uh, So let's read from the court opinion. The court says, quote, on January 26th of 2015, Gerald Simpson, a mentally infirmed man, was walking in the middle of Highway 12 in, I don't even know how the hell to pronounce this, Kosciuszko, Mississippi, Uh, K-O-S-C-I-U-S-K-O. However the hell you pronounce that, if you're in Mississippi, let me know. Uh, Around 5 p.m., an individual witnessed Simpson walking and contacted the authorities. The Kosciuszko Police Department responded to the dispatch call. Officer Steve Allen arrived and stopped Simpson and asked him to step out of the highway. He determined that Simpson was outside the city limits and therefore within Itala County's jurisdiction, so he alerted the Itala County Sheriff's Department. Waiting for Itala County law enforcement to arrive, Officer Allen attempted to question Simpson, but he was unable to understand Simpson due to Simpson's incoherent speech. Simpson continuously pointed westward toward the highway. Uh, Kosciuszko Police Officer Maurice Hawthorne arrived and replaced Officer Allen, who left to respond to another call. Simpson then began to resume his walk down the highway. Officer Hawthorne followed him in his patrol vehicle until he was able to convince Simpson to sit in the back seat of his car. Simpson sat with his feet on the ground with the door still open. Deputy Fleming of Itala County arrived on the scene, at which point the officer purportedly decided to take Simpson to his residence, though both officers acknowledged that Simpson was still incoherent. 
Deputy Fleming put Simpson in the back seat of his vehicle and asked Simpson where he resided. He was unable to articulate the location of his residence and instead pointed west on Highway 12 in the direction of Durant, Mississippi. Deputy Fleming did not ask for Simpson's exact address or his identification card. Based on Simpson pointing west, Deputy Fleming transported Simpson in that direction until he reached the Itala County line, which was sometime after 5 o'clock p.m. Deputy Fleming then pulled over, opened the back door of his patrol vehicle, Simpson exited the vehicle, and Simpson continued walking toward Durant on County Road 4101 outside of Itala County's jurisdiction. Deputy Fleming testified that there was barely enough daylight to see someone walking, but it was not dark yet. Later that night, Simpson was struck by a vehicle and killed as he was walking east back toward Kosciusko. So that is the facts of the case. I'm not going to delve into the reasoning because it is the type of thing we see in qualified immunity cases where it is utter bullshit. Uh, They both find, the court finds that both Simpson was seized in violation of the Fourth Amendment and that the seizure was unconstitutional, but they give him qualified immunity anyway because, quote, there is no binding Supreme Court or Fifth Circuit precedent to anchor our de novo review of whether a similarly situated officer violated a constitutional right acting under similar circumstances. Without setting forth a clearly established right for which the analysis can continue, plaintiffs have not defeated Deputy Fleming's qualified immunity defense. Periodic reminder that qualified immunity is a judicially created doctrine, created from scratch by the courts, no legislative intervention of any kind, often used to justify all sorts of criminal justice fuckery. Uh, Which brings me to the Fourth Circuit, where we have rare good news, let it not be said I don't report good news, where in this case, qualified immunity was denied. The court said no. And this was actually, I think this was NBank Review, if I remember. They actually came back and had the full court tell these officers to knock it off. Uh, From that opinion, the court says, quote, and this is this is a longer excerpt because I appreciate how the court happened to uh, deal with this instance of puppy side. Uh, court says, quote, on September 24th, 2017, uh, Rowan, this is the officer involved, drove to Ray, who is the plaintiff's Ray's property, to assist with an arrest warrant that was being served on Ray for domestic abuse. When Rowan arrived on Ray's property, four other officers were already present and parked in the driveway. Ray's dog, a 150-pound German shepherd named Jax, was secured by a zip lead attached to two trees that allowed the animal limited movement within the play area of the yard. Rather than park in the driveway like the other officers, Rowan parked his truck within the dog's play area, prompting the other officers on scene to shout and gesture towards Rowan, indicating that he should wait and let Ray get her dog. Rowan exited his vehicle and started walking towards the house. This is that type of gangster, badass type thing, you know, big dick paramilitary people that the police like to do when they're trying to serve certain types of warrants so they can feel big and proud. As Rowan emerged from his vehicle, Jax began barking at and approaching Rowan. Rowan responded by backing away from the dog and drawing his firearm while Ray ran to the zip lead and began shouting Jax's name. Uh, In a short moment, Jax reached the end of the zip lead and could not get any closer to Rowan, so Rowan observed that the dog could not reach him, further observed that Ray was now holding onto Jax's fully extended lead and continuing to call his name, so he stopped backing up. Rowan then took a step forward, positioning himself over Jax, and fired his weapon into the dog's head. The dog died from the wound. On September 20th of 2018, not quite a year later, the district court dismissed Ray's federal claim for an unlawful seizure of Jax. 
The district court concluded that Rowan's actions had been reasonable under the totality of the circumstances, and he would be entitled to qualified immunity. The district court also held that Rowan was entitled to qualified immunity. For the same reasons, it concluded that Ray failed to allege an unreasonable seizure. The court concluded that a reasonable officer would not have known it was clearly unreasonable to shoot Jacks in these circumstances. At worst, they contend this was a classic case of a bad guess in a gray area or a reasonable but mistaken judgment. Uh, Rowan argues that his actions were objectively reasonable because he was confronted with a 150-pound German shepherd that was alarmed by his arrival, barking, and that in a short moment had advanced to within a step of him. Under these circumstances, Rowan asserts that he reasonably felt threatened by Jacks. Rowan also cites to numerous cases involving dog shootings in which the officer's conduct was deemed reasonable despite the fact that the dogs at issue were smaller than Jacks or farther from the officer at the time of the shooting. As a result, Rowan reasons the district court properly determined Ray's complaint failed to allege a Fourth Amendment violation. We disagree. The problem with Rowan's argument, and thus with the district court's decision adopting it, is that it requires us to ignore certain factual allegations in Ray's complaint and to draw reasonable inferences against Ray on a motion to dismiss. According to the complaint, Rowan stopped backing away from Jax when the dog reached the end of the zip lead and then took a step forward toward the dog before firing his weapon. These factual allegations yield the reasonable inference that Rowan observed that the dog could no longer reach him and thus could not have held a reasonable belief that the dog posed an imminent threat. Taking these factual allegations as true and drawing these reasonable inferences in Ray's favor, Rowan's seizure of Jax was unreasonable because Jax no longer posed any threat to Rowan. We acknowledge that there is no subquote directly on point binding authority in this circuit that establishes the principle we adopt today. Until now, we have never had the occasion to hold that it is unreasonable for a police officer to shoot a privately owned animal when it does not pose an immediate threat to the officer or others. Still, even without directly on point binding authority, qualified immunity is inappropriate if the right was clearly established based on general constitutional principles or a consensus of persuasive authority. First, we observe that the unlawfulness of Rowan's alleged actions was established by the general principles we espoused in Altman, which is another one of their Fourth Amendment cases. Uh, in Altman, we held that privately owned dogs are protected under the Fourth Amendment and further established that the reasonableness of the seizure of a dog depends on whether the government's interest in safety outweighs the private interest in a particular case. Based on these broader principles alone, it would have been manifestly apparent to a reasonable officer in Rowan's position that shooting a privately owned dog in the absence of any safety rationale at all is unreasonable. Based on this pre-existing consensus of persuasive case law, they also listed some other circuits that had uh, covered this, by the way. Together with the general principles we announced in Altman, we hold that a reasonable officer in Rowan's position would have known that this alleged conduct was unlawful at the time of the shooting in this case. Thus, we hold that the district court erred in concluding Rowan is entitled to qualified immunity at this stage of the litigation. That is a fabulous decision, not least of which because it actually, you know, addresses puppy side, which usually, you know, when they address it, it's, you know, the officer can execute whatever dogs he wants. Uh, but also the articulation of when qualified immunity is not appropriate. Uh, you don't see that often. And it's nice to have because qualified immunity is a horrible, horrible doctrine. Uh, so those are the court cases. We will give you those opinions so that you can read them yourself. In other criminal justice fuckery news, we start with our beloved federal government. The Drug Enforcement Administration has indicted one of their own because <laughs> this guy, 
laundered a shitload of money, uh, all with the government's blessing, basically. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, U.S. authorities arrested a former Drug Enforcement Administration agent on Friday on charges he conspired with Colombian drug traffickers to steal millions of dollars the U.S. government had seized from suspected dealers. In an indictment unsealed Friday, prosecutors said Jose Irizarry had been enriching himself by secretly using his position and his special access to information. He used the money, they said, to fund a lavish lifestyle of expensive homes and cars and a $30,000 Tiffany ring. Let me, let me pause. I don't understand, and, and I went through this when I was going through the process of buying an engagement ring, because the first thing they want to try and do is, is show you the biggest fucking rock in the world, even though some of us have a budget. I don't know why the hell you would wear something that's worth that much money. Like, what happens if you lost it or it got damaged or one of the stones fell out? Like, that would just, you know, I would never wear anything worth 30 grand. I don't think, the only thing I own that is worth anything remotely close to that is my car. I would never put something like that on my body. It's just fucking insane. Uh, sorry, story continues. Federal prosecutors said Irizarry used his position with the drug agency to launder money with the help of what they described as a Columbia-based drug trafficking and money laundering organization that he was ostensibly investigating. Pro prosecutors also charged his wife, Natalia Gomez Irizarry. FBI agents arrested Irizarry and his wife in Puerto Rico on Friday. They are charged with 19 counts of fraud, conspiracy, and identity theft. Prosecutors alleged that Irizarry, once a decorated agent, took advantage of a particularly sensitive type of undercover DEA investigation in which agents pose as money launderers, collecting cash from drug dealers, and funneling it through undercover bank accounts. They said Irizarry secretly diverted that money instead to accounts he and other conspirators controlled. In late 2013, Irizarry helped collect nearly $1.1 million from suspected drug dealers that was deposited into undercover DEA bank accounts. Irizarry then had more than half of that money wired to accounts controlled by one of his associates. Two years later, Irizarry helped collect more than 1 million euros in bulk cash from traffickers in the Netherlands, then had 141000 wired to a car dealer for himself and the head of a Colombian trafficking group. And there is more included in the criminal complaint linked in the news story. We only hire the best and brightest for our beloved federal government. Uh, in state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery, we will start in Alabama, where police ended up shooting the wrong woman for sport because they were looking for someone who was already in jail. From that story, it says, quote, Ann Riley curled up on her recliner, drifting back to sleep after seeing her fiancé off to work when a commotion startled her. Outside, in the pre-dawn dark, authorities from local and federal law enforcement agencies had surrounded the 20-year-old's home in rural, Wil rural Wilmer, Alabama. They were looking for her fiancé's uncle, who had outstanding warrants, according to police. As an entry team approached the side of the house, authorities said, Riley pointed a gun at federal agents. I'm going to note, that's not a crime. If you don't know that these people are police and you see them raiding your house, we have things like castle doctrine, stand your ground laws, where you are allowed to defend yourself. Our story continues, quote, when she refused commands to drop the weapon, they opened fire, striking her several times, according to authorities. The botched raid sent Riley to the emergency room, where she was treated for gunshot wounds. Now, why is it botched? The man authorities wanted wasn't there. Police had actually booked him in county jail the previous day, and family members would later say he hadn't lived at the residence in more than a year. That was apparently unclear to authorities on the scene. No shit. 
Uh, the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation is now investigating the incident, which stemmed from a broad narcotics mission in the area involving local authorities and immigration and customs enforcement, according to Brian Cox, an ICE spokesman. Cox declined to comment on the incident in detail because the investigation is ongoing, but said Homeland Security Investigations, a division of ICE, helped carry out the raid as part of a high-intensity drug trafficking area task force. Speaking with local media, Mobile County Sheriff Sam Cochran acknowledged that Riley was never a suspect and blamed authorities' errors on a, subquote, miscommunication. Officers were searching for 41-year-old Nicholas McLeod, who, according to jail records, had been booked more than 12 hours earlier on drug charges. Cochran said police would not have gone to the house had they known he was already in custody. I shouldn't laugh, but Jesus Christ. Uh, Subquote, we do know that there is a miscommunication in this situation. We don't know the exact cause. Cochran told WALA last week, we've narrowed it down, though, to one of two things. Either the investigators did not make one final check this morning before sending the teams out to make arrests, or the warrants section did not communicate to the computer system that the warrants were no longer active. We're running that down. Good luck. You know, these people are so fucking stupid, they can't check who they have in custody. In the process, they nearly kill a homeowner exercising her constitutional rights to defend her homestead. It's absolutely outrageous. You need to abolish ICE also. These stupid fucking local federal task forces. We got another story about a joint task force later on today. Uh, But this type of stuff is just absolutely outrageous. It makes a mockery of the Bill of Rights. Uh, Up in Washington, D.C., we have, I guess, good news. Uh, D.C. police officers will no longer handcuff children 12 and younger, except in situations deemed dangerous to the child or to the public, due to a new guideline designed to improve how police engage with juvenile suspects, police chief Peter Newsham said. Uh, Police officials began to revamp departmental policies with the D.C. Attorney General's office in April in response to an incident involving an officer captured on video chasing down and detaining a nine-year-old boy who police handcuffed but later determined committed no crime. That incident came weeks after police handcuffed a 10-year-old boy in a case in which Attorney General Carl Racine later said the child was, quote, totally innocent. Racine launched a probe into the encounter and joined police officials to review current general orders for officers and training methods to recommend changes. So, quote, we just want to handle our juveniles in the most professional way, Newsham said in an interview. You have to have an understanding that these kids aren't fully developed emotionally and mentally. Effective immediately, officers will be prohibited from handcuffing juveniles 12 and younger. Officers will have discretion to handcuff teenagers aged 13 to 17 based on the severity of the crime and the behavior of the child that's involved. Whether they are a danger to themselves or others will be one of the considerations. So I guess kudos to D.C. for finally fixing things however long it's been. Uh, But then you get to Florida where you have – this is just a fucked up situation. So Florida has a thing called the Baker Act, and it's a 1971 law, been around for almost half a century – uh, theoretically, it's to help people who need mental health care get it. But this story is just outrageous. Uh, story says, quote, At around four feet tall, in a pink T-shirt with a rainbow embroidered on it, the six-year-old, yes, six-year-old, stood outside River Point Behavioral Health Center. She thought she was going on a field trip. She'd ended up being held for two days for an involuntary evaluation. Unable to see her mom, who said her daughter was administered antipsychotic medication without her permission. New video footage reveals a calm, curious, chatty child who one police officer described as being, subquote, very pleasant. 
The officer also questioned if school personnel were causing the problem. So, quote, I think they may have agitated her a little bit. The responding officer commented. On February 4th, Martina Falk's daughter, Nadia King, had a tantrum in her special needs class at Love Grove Elementary School. The child is diagnosed with ADHD and a developmental disorder and was said to be destroying school property, throwing chairs, and so, quote, out of control by a social worker contracted by Duval County Public Schools, prompting a call to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office to escort her to the mental health center. The body camera footage obtained by the Times Union captured the conversation between the two responding officers and the child. So, quote, I don't see her acting how they said. She's been actually very pleasant, a female sheriff's officer said to her male colleague. The female officer added that she thinks the six-year-old's outbursts were in reaction to school personnel, subquote, pushing her buttons. She continued, subquote, because they said this is the fourth out of five days she's been acting like this. Well, then I think the problem might be y'all. She's fine. There's nothing wrong with her. But under the social worker's recommendation, Falk's daughter was placed under the Baker Act law, which provides emergency health services, temporary detention, and psychiatric evaluation for people in need. Story continues. It's worth noting that portions of the video inside the school are redacted. There's also no available footage of the actual incident that prompted calls for reinforcement, only the aftermath. Duval County Public School spokesman Tracy Pierce couldn't confirm if the classroom had cameras or not, citing security confidentiality, but said even if they did, the footage wouldn't be publicly available. Isn't it ironic that the Times video is not available? It's to protect the government employees, not to protect the students. You know, if mom wants this out there, because it turns out the police imprisoned her daughter for two days under this law when everything was fine, and they did it at the orders of the public school personnel, you would think they'd go ahead and release that footage. Uh, Story continues. Inside the squad car, the elementary school student is observant, inquisitive, and chatty. Within her short drive with a female responding officer from the school to the medical center, there's giggly banter. She asks about the police car, lists off numbers and letters she sees around her, and tries to troubleshoot the officer's malfunctioning printer. She asks to go to the store to buy candy. She hums. She asks who's in the second police car and why it's following them. When the paperwork the school provided the sheriff's officer fails to list Falk's first name, the child fires it off, along with the correct spelling, a phone number, and a triple check that the officer got it right. At one point, the conversation gets candid. Do you have snacks? The young girl asked the officer. As part of Baker Act protocol, Falk was unable to see or take her daughter home until the evening of February 6th, two days after the incident. She says her daughter is traumatized. Subquote, as a mother, I feel helpless. I don't see the benefit of the Baker Act. It's not helping children, locking them away just to get rid of them. Falk's legal team maintains that if the girl was so calm, she didn't need to be held in the facility in the first place. Subquote, at some point, by their own admission, she was calm, and she must have been calm enough that her mother should be able to pick her up, Attorney Reginald Reeves of the Cochrane firm said. Subquote, there were alternatives in this situation. You will be shocked, I'm sure, to learn that Nadia King is black. Uh, down in Georgia, in Cobb County, we have a sheriff trying to avoid information about conditions in his own jail, reaching people in the jail. 
Uh, that story says, quote, One day after Cobb County Sheriff Neil Warren denied he removed a local newspaper from the county jail, he has now changed his answer. He says the paper was not distributed because an unflattering article could have posed a security risk. That shit's funny. That's just fucking ridiculous. The American Civil Liberties Union of Georgia issued a press release Wednesday saying it received information that Warren allegedly told jail staff to remove copies of the Marietta Daily Journal from the Cobb Adult Detention Center and that the paper had been banned. An article in the removed edition of the paper recounts complaints of cruel and inhumane treatment inmates say they have received inside the jail and includes denials from jail officials. An attorney for the ACLU said removing the paper could constitute a violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution, which protects freedom of speech and of the press. In a statement to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution through his lobbyist, sheriffs have fucking lobbyists, isn't that crazy? Uh, Warren, subquote, emphatically denied the ACLU's allegations and said the ACLU was misleading the public. Subquote, the ACLU continues in their attempt to mislead, spin, and or inflame issues that are baseless in fact, but potentially harmful in their effect, the sheriff's statement read. However, in a separate statement given only to the Marietta Daily Journal on Wednesday, Warren confirmed the January 12th edition of the paper containing the article was not distributed inside the jail, subquote, due to its possible impact on the safety and security of our staff and inmates. Asked why two different newspapers received two different answers, the Cobb Sheriff's Office did not respond directly. Cobb Sheriff's Office spokesman Glenn Daniel instead said the department's subquote one-time interruption of providing copies of the paper to inmates and staff does not mean a ban had been implemented. Sheriff Warren, who has been in office since 2005 and is running for re-election for a fifth term, has come under fire from the ACLU and other community activists for the seven inmate deaths reported just since December of 2018. The deaths, along with a month-long lockdown, have sparked criticism from residents and families, local activists, and civil rights organizations, which are calling on the sheriff to address their concerns about medical care for inmates and jail staffing levels. Uh, up in Maryland, in Prince George's County, we have both the third and fifth rule of Fisk. Uh, third rule is that there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. And then the fifth rule of Fisk is that when people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. From that story, it says, quote, Prince George's County Police charged an officer with murder Tuesday, saying he fired seven shots at a man who was cuffed in the front seat of a cruiser with his hands behind his back. Police Chief Hank Stowinski announced the charges less than a day after the incident. Following the department's investigation, Stowinski said bringing such serious charges against an officer within 24 hours of an incident is, subquote, unprecedented for the department. I'm going to note, totally righteous to charge him. This story is outrageous. But then you, at this point in the news article, you see the officer's mugshot, and shocker, it's not a white guy. Uh, subquote, I am unable to come to our community this evening and offer you a reasonable explanation for the events that occurred last night, said Stowinski, who called the moment the most difficult of his tenure as police chief in the Washington suburb. So, quote, I have concluded that what happened last night is a crime. No shit. Uh, he identified the victim as William Green, 43, of southeast Washington. Green was killed while sitting in the passenger side of a police car in the Temple Hills area. The details Stowinski presented Tuesday altered the narrative 
Note there, altered the narrative. Where have we heard that before, where the police put out one story and then it turns out to change upon subsequent investigation? Uh, Altered the narrative previously shared by police after the shooting Monday night. Police initially reported Green may have been under the influence of PCP, a hallucinogenic that had been associated with violent behavior, and that there was a struggle inside the cruiser before Green's death. Stowinski said PCP does not appear to have been involved, and he could not corroborate an account by witnesses of a struggle in the cruiser. Green may not have been wearing a seatbelt in the cruiser, as initially reported, Stowinski said. uh, Corporal Michael Owen Jr. is in custody and awaiting a bond hearing. He is charged with second-degree murder, manslaughter, and associated weapons charges. Good riddance to that guy, but also fuck the department for trying to cover it up initially. Over in Michigan, we've got a pair of stories. We'll start in Detroit. That story says, quote, There's a federal lawsuit against Wayne County alleging that its vehicle forfeiture program is leaving innocent people without cars to drive. Two people came forward Wednesday and said they had their cars seized, even though they weren't part of any crime. Melissa Ingram and Robert Reeves both said they are victims of the county's seizure and civil forfeiture tactics. So, quote, I feel like I was robbed. The police took my stuff and they've been holding it from me, Reeves said. Deputies allegedly seized his car, along with 2000 that he had on him. He said it wasn't because of something he did. According to his attorney, quote, Robert drove to a job site where someone supposedly stole a piece of construction equipment. No one thinks Robert stole anything, but his vehicle was seized anyway, along with the cash that he had on him at the time, said Wesley Hatat, senior attorney for the Institute for Justice, representing both Reeves and Ingram. So, quote, residents of Wayne County in Detroit, Michigan, have been preyed upon by police and prosecutors. The Institute for Justice, this is not part of the article. I'm just, you know, catching you all up on other articles that have talked about it. Uh, Institute of Justice filed a lawsuit against the department as part of this. And the day or two after the lawsuit was filed, the Wayne County returned Reeves's car. Didn't return the cash, but gave him his car back. I guess hoping the lawsuit was going to go away. So that lawsuit is still ongoing. Uh, Over in Grand Rapids, this is the other local federal task force bullshit going on. And this is a a long excerpt because it's ridiculous. Uh, Story says, quote, In the summer of 2014, James King, then 21, was on break from Michigan's Grand Valley State University. That summer, he worked two jobs, one installing high-speed internet cable and the other at a now-defunct nonprofit called The Geek Group. On Friday, July 18th, King was walking from one of those jobs to the other in Grand Rapids, Michigan, when he was stopped by two men leaning against a black SUV. It was daytime. The men were wearing street clothes and baseball caps. One was wearing sunglasses. One of the men asked King for identification. He said he didn't have any on him. The men then moved toward him, trapping him against the SUV. One reached for and removed his wallet. Thinking he was being mugged, King tried to run. The men grabbed him and threw him to the ground. King cried out for help, asking anyone nearby to call the police. One of the men then put him in a chokehold until he fell unconscious. When King came to, he panicked and bit the man's arm in an attempt to escape. The men then furiously beat him. One would later say he punched King in the head, subquote, as hard as I could, as fast as I could, as many times as I could. Some passersby did call the police. Others filmed the beating and aftermath. One woman later said she thought she was watching a murder. But when uniformed officers arrived, they discovered that the men who had beaten King were law enforcement. Detective Todd Allen works for the Grand Rapids Police Department. Special Agent Douglas Brownback works for the FBI. The uniformed police then asked witnesses if they had filmed the encounter, and if they did, ordered them to delete the videos. 
Several witnesses said they had no idea the assailants were police until well into the beating. The two men who attacked King, Detective Allen and Agent Brownback, were part of a local federal task force overseen by the FBI. They had mistaken King for a wanted man. After the beating, King was taken to a hospital, handcuffed to his bed. By that point, it should have been clear that King was not the fugitive that the task force was looking for. The task force had a vague description of a white male with glasses between 5 feet 10 inches and 6 feet 3 inches, features that would match thousands of people in the Grand Rapid area. The officers relied on a 7-year-old driver's license photo of the suspect. The suspect at the time was 26 and had light hair. King was 21 and had dark hair. Nevertheless, after he was treated, King was taken from his hospital bed to a jail cell where he was held over a weekend before his parents could bail him out. Prosecutors then charged King with assault of a police officer, assault of a police officer causing a bodily injury, and resisting arrest, all three felonies. King refused a plea bargain and went to trial. The jury acquitted. After the verdict, one juror hugged King and apologized for what he'd gone through. The criminal trial bankrupted King's parents. In the five and a half years since that altercation, King's search for justice and accountability for the men who beat him has led him through a Byzantine tour of the state and federal court system. A lawsuit against a law enforcement officer for civil rights abuses is a massive undertaking with long odds. The upfront costs can be substantial, and the immunities afforded officers and the governments that employ them present major barriers to even getting in front of a jury. Now, I snipped out the next segment of the article because it goes through the different ways you can sue police depending on what they do. So I'll give you a link to it so you can go back to that, but the story picks up, quote, As King learned, legal remedies are even more elusive when you're trying to sue members of a joint task force. These task forces blur the lines between the state and federal agencies and thus jurisdictions. Plaintiffs have to choose the right venue and the right legal action, and they risk having the suit tossed out if they choose badly. Meanwhile, government lawyers can try to win not only on the merits, but through procedural games, claiming whichever jurisdiction is most likely to throw the case off track. King filed his lawsuit in 2016. Because these task forces have a history of invoking both state and federal law when it suits them, King filed claims under Bivens, which is a Supreme Court case allowing uh, claims against officers, uh, the Federal Tort Claims Act, and Section 1983. He alleged in his suit that the two task force officers had violated his Fourth Amendment rights when they stopped and beat him, and that they then maliciously prosecuted him. He also alleged that they tortiously injured him. In 2017, a federal district court dismissed all of his claims. The reasoning was odd. The man sought by the task force was wanted for a home burglary in which he'd allegedly stolen some cans and liquor bottles. It was not a federal crime. It was a violation of Michigan law committed in Michigan. Nevertheless, the federal district court ruled that the task force was a federal agency governed by federal law. Under the ruling, even the Grand Rapids detective is then treated as a federal employee. This means that King can't sue either officer under Section 1983. That's the section we use to sue uh, state and municipal police. The district court then also dismissed King's tort claims. While the Federal Tort Claims Act allows people to sue federal agencies for torts committed by their employees, the law also stipulates that any federal official assumes the state immunities of equivalent state officials in the state in which the lawsuit was filed. The district court ruled that because Michigan law grants sovereign immunity to law enforcement agencies, the FBI enjoys that same immunity, and that bars King from suing the agent who beat him under the Federal Tort Claims Act. 
In other words, the federal agent escapes accountability because he's treated like a state cop, and the state cop escapes because he's assumed to be a federal cop. That left King's Bivens claims. Here, the district court ruled that both cops were protected by qualified immunity. Judge Janet T. Neff found that it was reasonable for the officers to mistake King for the suspect, and so the stop was also reasonable. Therefore, when he tried to flee, it was reasonable to tackle him. And when he woke up and bit one officer on the arm, it was reasonable to beat him senseless. It was also reasonable to prosecute him because he had assaulted two cops who were acting reasonably. It all seems so reasonable. Uh, story goes on from there. Basically, it runs down the appellate history. The uh, guy appealed the dismissal. The appeals court agreed on some of the parts but reversed on one tiny piece of it, and then that is getting appealed to the Supreme Court. But the closing quotes just encapsulate how thoroughly fucked law enforcement is in this country. Uh, Subquote, I grew up on a farm in a rural area, King says. I was always taught to trust law enforcement, that police officers were the people you turn to when you need help. Now when I think about the police, it's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, King says his mistrust of law enforcement stems not just from the beating itself, but from what happened afterwards. So, quote, I know that mistakes happen, and I would have accepted an apology, but everything that happened after wasn't an accident. It was intentional. Once they realized they had the wrong guy, they tried to put me in prison to cover their butts. Now they're trying to escape accountability. Uh, Working for the government means never having to say you're sorry. So that was in Michigan. Over in Oregon, in West Lynn, this is another one where I just I had to excerpt big parts of the story because it's so ridiculous. You know, I would say you can't believe it, but y'all listen to this, so of course you can believe it. So in West Lynn, quote, former West Lynn police chief Terry Thomas had his officers work as his personal posse to initiate an unwarranted racially motivated surveillance and arrest of a black Portland man as a favor to the chief's fishing buddy. The case had no ties to West Lynn. The city recently negotiated to pay $600,000 to the target of the rogue investigation, Michael Fesser, 48. Westland police also have agreed to a face-to-face meeting with Fesser. The settlement is one of the largest in the state, resulting from a wrongful arrest claim, Fesser's lawyer Paul Buchanan said. It ends a federal lawsuit that Fesser filed in the summer of 2018. The brazen misdeeds by Westland police include making a surreptitious audio recording of Fesser at work without a warrant or court order, arresting him without probable cause with the help of Portland police, and seizing his cash, cell phone, and documents without a search warrant, court records show. The case file includes a raft of racist and crude text messages between Westland police and Fesser's boss at the time, aimed at Fesser and others. The Westland detective who led the investigation against Fesser deleted the offensive texts from his phone and claimed they weren't of a racist or homophobic nature, but they were found on another phone, according to court records. The Westland investigation began in February of 2017 after Fesser brought concerns of racial harassment by co-workers to his boss at the time, Eric Benson, owner of A&B Towing in southeast Portland. Fester said other employees called him racist slurs, and one asked him how he liked a Confederate flag that was fastened to a pickup parked in the tow company's lot. Fester had worked for the company since 2004, mostly managing its car auctions, selling impounded, abandoned, and other cars. It was his job to record the amount of the sales, receive deposits and payments from bidders, and handle the cash transactions. After Fesser complained about a hostile workplace, Benson went to Chief Thomas, his friend in West Lynn, who he had joined on four or five fishing trips. 
Benson convinced the police chief to investigate unsupported allegations that Fesser was skimming proceeds from the car auctions, according to court records. Benson said he believed his company should have been earning more from the auctions and that Portland police wouldn't respond to his concerns. Time has sent a text message to Benson on February 21st of 2017 saying his detective was finishing up a sex crimes case, but subquote, and we'll have your case ready to go before Saturday. If I hear more, I'll let you know. On February 25th, the Westland police conducted surveillance of Fesser at his job. Police that day relied on an associate of Benson's to record Fesser at work using an audio app called Swanview. Benson also watched a live feed from company video surveillance cameras, according to evidence obtained during the investigation. Benson provided real-time updates to Westland Detective Tony Reeves. Text messages show. As the surveillance went on, Benson and Reeves exchanged sexually explicit and homophobic banter, referencing themselves and the police chief, and made racist comments about Fesser their text messages revealed. At one point, Benson told Reeves that he regretted Fesser's arrest wouldn't happen in Clackamas County because he had hoped to, subquote, make sure he was with some real racist boys. Although Reeves later admitted that officers hadn't found any signs of wrongdoing by Fesser during the surveillance, he told another West Lynn officer, along with five Portland officers, to stop Fesser as he headed home from work around 5 p.m. that day. So, quote, my game, my rules, Reeves wrote to the tow company's owner just before police moved in. Reeves continued in text to Benson, so, quote, it's better that we arrest him before he makes the complaint of race discrimination. Then it can't be retaliation. Westland police ordered Fesser out of his SUV. They took his phone, cash, and a letter Fesser had written to his boss documenting the alleged racial discrimination he faced at work. They took him to Portland's East Precinct, where Westland officers questioned him. Reeves asked for the passcode to Fesser's cell phone, but Fesser refused to disclose it. Reeves said in a deposition later that he sought the passcode, subquote, in case I was able to obtain a search warrant to search his phone. Now, bear in mind, Fesser is not suspected of any real crime. The boss fabricated this shit in tandem with the police chief because Fesser was going to file a complaint for racial discrimination. Story continues, quote, Fesser was taken to the downtown jail in Portland, booked on an aggravated theft allegation, and released. That night, Reeves notified Benson that Westland police had found a letter in Fesser's car, subquote, about the workplace and discrimination, and Benson alerted his fishing buddy according to text messages obtained by Fesser's lawyer. Benson texted Chief Thomas at 626 in the afternoon that day, asking, can I get extra patrols for a bit at my house? Yep, send me your address. Thomas responded by text. I'll handle it. About two days later, Westland police called Fesser, who had gotten a new phone with the same number, and told him to come to their department to retrieve his belongings. Afraid to go on his own, Fesser waited for his wife to drive with him there. Once he arrived, Reeves told Fesser that he was fired from his job and ordered him to not return to A&B Towing's property. Now, the uh, criminal charges they took out, the DA decided not to prosecute. So that particular case got dismissed because they had no evidence. So fast forward to September 2017. In September 2017, Fesser filed a lawsuit in Multnomah County Courthouse against Benson and A&B Towing, alleging racial discrimination and retaliation. That lawsuit led Benson to press Westland police officers about Fesser's theft charge, wanting to know what happened. Westland police, in turn, asked the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office to revive the case. 
In November of 2017, based largely on grand jury testimony by Detective Reeves and Benson and statements from two witnesses who Westland police described as subquote shady and subquote dirty, Fesser was indicted on five new counts of first-degree theft, according to court records. As Fesser's lawsuit against the tow company was pending, lawyers for Fesser's ex-boss offered to have the criminal charges against Fesser dismissed if Fesser dropped the civil suit. That's wholly fucking inappropriate. I mean, that's that's functionally extortion, but we'll we'll let that go. We'll continue. Uh, Fesser wouldn't accept that. Nearly a year after Fesser's arrest, his lawyers finally received the damning text messages between Benson, the tow company owner, and Reeves, the Westland detective. They came through an exchange of evidence in Fesser's civil suit against A&B Towing. Now, magically, after this, things start to happen. Quote, in March of 2018, Benson and A&B Towing agreed to pay Fesser $415,000 in damages, wages, and attorney's fees to settle his discrimination suit. As his federal case then progressed against Westland Police, the department's lawyers urged the court to dismiss the case, arguing that Westland officers were acting as the agents of the tow company and therefore couldn't be sued based on the state settlement. Think about that for a minute. That functionally is an admission that the police were violating this guy's rights. They were just doing it at the direction of the tow company. Uh, story continues, quote, Westland police admitted in court records that they conducted audio surveillance of Fesser without a court order and seized his phone without a warrant. Reeves was investigated and disciplined for failure to properly document the seizure of Fesser's cash after his arrest, according to his deposition. He also acknowledged that he didn't document the seizure of Fesser's cell phone and didn't record the interview of Fesser in Portland, both violations of Westland police policy. Reeves, according to deposition records, also had deleted his February 25th text messages exchange with Benson, and he maintained that there had never been any homophobic or racist remarks sent between them. But Fesser and his lawyer already had the text messages from Benson's phone and knew that to be false. That was around the time you ended up with the negotiated settlement for that $600,000. It's unclear the level of discipline Reeves received. He was promoted to sergeant in 2018, failing upward. Uh, Timus retired in October of 2017 amid allegations that he drove drunk while off duty. He received more than $123,000 in a separation agreement. And then Stradley, who was one of the other police involved in the story, he resigned as a Westland lieutenant in January of 2018, started working the next day as a police trainer at the state's basic police academy for the Department of Public Safety Standards and Training, where he is a supervisor. So these guys went through and did this fairly elaborate violation of this guy's rights, including surveillance and seizures of stuff. And one guy got a promotion, another guy got a promotion, and the chief retired with a severance package that's 123 grand, uh, quite a bit more than the median salary in that particular jurisdiction. Uh, so that's what you got in West Lynn. Plus, you know, the guy whose stuff was taken is getting over a million dollars between the settlement with his former boss and the settlement with the state. Uh, so at some point, people need to realize that police uh, fuckery is goddamn expensive. Uh, over in Pennsylvania, in Allentown, a man who was arrested for resisting arrest has been found not guilty. That story says, quote, Moments after an Allentown man whose violent 2018 arrest was captured on a video that went viral and was acquitted of all charges Friday morning, Leahy or Lehigh, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, I apologize, County Judge Maria Dantos lashed out at the Allentown Police Department and District Attorney's Office, calling John Perez's arrest and prosecution, quote, shameful. 
Dantos told Perez that he was justified in protecting himself after an officer forcefully shoved him during an encounter in South Allentown. And the judge said she was, subquote, disgusted by what she saw and heard on officers' body cam videos from the incident. Subquote, you came onto that scene like angry, hostile bullies, Dantos told the officers. You know, those people, as the officers called them, are your community. The jury of seven women and five men deliberated for more than three hours before acquitting Perez, 36, of resisting arrest and disorderly conduct. Dantos threw out a charge of failing to disperse midway through the trial. The trial revolved around a September 8, 2018 encounter on South Corn Street in Allentown, which ended with four officers punching and kicking Perez before arresting him. Jurors watched and scrutinized a surveillance video of Perez's encounter with the officers, as well as police body camera videos that captured the incident from different angles. Four Allentown police officers also took the stand, testifying that they were already dealing with a small but unruly crowd of residents as they investigated reports of an armed man in the neighborhood when Perez approached several officers and became combative. Perez was the lone defense witness. He denied fighting with police and said he only verbally confronted them over their bad language and rude treatment of residents. Police body cam video captured officers cursing and calling residents names. Dantos said she paid close attention to their words. Perez told the jury he suffered a cut on his head, a broken nose, a dislocated shoulder, and other injuries during the arrest. He admitted telling officers he didn't need medical attention that night, saying during the trial that he was afraid. Yeah, no shit. If you had four officers beating the shit out of me, I wouldn't want medical attention with them around either. Uh, Perez's arrest was captured on a neighbor's surveillance video that was posted on Facebook and the Morning Call website. It was viewed more than 97,000 times and sparked community outrage and a protest at a city council meeting. So the news article has the um, the court reporter transcript of the judge's remarks, and I just included a few snippets because it's not OCR'd, so I didn't want to like take the whole thing. But I'll give you the link so you can read it. But among the highlights, the judge asks, quote, Do you know how hard it is for members of that community to call the police? What happened to protect and serve? Isn't that still on the cars? And by Officer LeBron's own testimony to everybody who wants to back the police in this case, his own testimony was that no crime was committed when he shoved the defendant down on the ground. That's a fact. That is this case. I have seen murder cases, shootings, robberies, burglaries, pled to all manner of officers, but in this case, nothing. You chose to instead put on display police officers calling people pussies, bitches, threatening to shoot a dog, forming your disgusting blue line of four officers who turned their backs and said they saw nothing. You perjured yourselves. You escalated a situation without cause. Cops smirking on the stand at this jury, laughing at the defense attorney, high-fiving in the hallway after testimony as if there were something, anything, to be proud of here. Fucking yikes. So good on the judge. Glad Mr. Perez was found not guilty. We'll give you a link so you can read the whole thing. Uh, finally, down in Texas, in Dallas, we have third rule of Fisk. You know, remember third rules that there are no new stories, just new names and new jurisdictions. In this case, it's a fuckload of police breaking the law again, but they get slaps on the wrist 
And even though there's super minor slaps on the wrist, the police union goes wild anyway, talking about how unjust it all is. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, former vice officers walked into Dallas Police Department headquarters on Wednesday and received punishments ranging from three to 20 days without pay related to policy violations and misconduct within the vice unit dating back to 2016. It takes them four years to do these fucking things. Uh, In a statement, Chief U. Renee Hall said the nearly three-year investigation showed detectives failed to place evidentiary or seized gambling money into the property room and also didn't maintain proper documentation. I'm going to do a sidebar here. It's because they were skimming that money. Uh, The poor documentation left internal affairs investigators without the ability to conclude how detectives accounted for monetary gambling winnings, according to a summary released by Dallas Police. An internal affairs investigation upheld 27 policy violations for 22 former vice officers. Leadership with the Dallas Police Association and the National Latino Law Enforcement Organization said Wednesday the punishment unfairly targeted former vice detectives, none of which were accused of doing anything illegal. The DPA's Mike Mata called the discipline decision subquote an embarrassment. If 16 of them are doing the exact same thing, that means that was a training issue, Mata said. Now, here's the funny part about this. If you or I break the law and we don't even know that it's against the law, what is the response? Well, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Here, you have 22 officers violating the law, and the response is, well, it must be a training issue. It's absolutely fucking disgusting. Uh, so, folks, that will do it for this episode of Fiscamall. That is the all of the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery we had for today's episode. Uh, continue sending me stories as you have them. I've been keeping them, even during our hiatus, I've been keeping them all in a notepad as folks tweet them to me. Uh, So sending it via Twitter is probably the best bet. Direct message. Feel free to send them on Facebook or email as well if you have it. Uh, But Twitter is where I've been culling most of this information over time. If you happen to like this particular episode, please do me a favor and leave us a review or give us five stars on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. And also please tell a friend that we are back. Like I said, I know I've said that three times now, but uh, we have no audience. We have literally zero audience as part of our, you know, multi-month disappearance. So we're having to rebuild that from scratch. So feel free to share the episode. Let folks know that we're here. And thank you, as always, for listening. On behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, I hope you'll have a blessed week, and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care.